instead of taking an almost psychedelic trip together as a society, we used digital technology more like steroids or speed in order to double down on extractive corporate capitalism. Welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. I'm your host, Paris Marks, and this week my guest is Douglas Roshkoff. Douglas is an author and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. He's the author of many books, including most recently, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. You might have heard me talk about it on our recent episode with Dave Karp. Douglas is also the host of the Team Human podcast, which I appeared on a few months ago to talk about my book and had a fantastic discussion with Douglas about it. I'm very excited to have Douglas on the show because he's been writing critically about the tech industry for quite a long time. And I feel like this most recent book of his, Survival of the Richest, not only digs into some of these escape fantasies of the billionaires, you know, as they look at the consequences of the societies that they're creating and try to find escape routes instead of actually solving the problems that they are creating. But it also digs into the broader mindset of the tech industry and the people who are on top of it, and how things went so wrong from those kind of early ideals around what the internet and these tech companies were actually going to do to society. And I feel like in some ways it's also Douglas is able to reflect on these things as he's been writing about them, commenting on them, watching them unfold over these past couple of decades. So I really enjoyed the book, and I was very excited and happy to talk to Douglas about it, to dig into it with him, to draw some parallels between the things that he was observing early on, you know, as the internet revolution, so to speak, was taking off and these companies were being formed in the dot-com boom period, and then linking that up to things that we've been seeing more recently, both in the tech economy, but also among these really wealthy people who have benefited from that explosion of capitalist wealth creation that followed the internet, and how their interventions are moving society in the exact wrong direction and giving us the wrong solutions to any of the kinds of problems that we actually need to solve, that we actually need to deal with if we're to build a better world. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I certainly really did. And I encourage you to go pick up Douglas's book because I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you like this conversation, make sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share the show on social media or with any friends or colleagues who you think would learn from it. And if you want to support the work that goes into making the show and having these critical conversations every week, you can join supporters like Jess from the United States by going to patreon.com slash tech won't save us and becoming a supporter. Thanks so much and enjoy this week's conversation. Douglas, welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited to chat with you. Obviously, you had me on your show, Team Human, a few months ago, and we had a great discussion about my book, but also, you know, topics far beyond that. And honestly, it was like one of the conversations that I most enjoyed going and talking about the book because, you know, it branched so far off into these other things that you've been working on that I've been writing about. And so I'm just excited to have you on the show so we can have a wide ranging discussion as well about your work. Oh, me too. Totally. I'm a, I'm as in case you don't know, I'm a fan of you and what you do. So for me, it's like a extra special thrill to actually do this with you. Thank you very much. It's so kind to hear from you, of course, after I've read a number of your books and I've been following your book for so long, too. So, <laughs> yeah, thank you. So here's here's where I want to start. You know, obviously, the book gets us into these escape fantasies of billionaires that people get really excited about and, and think are really interesting. But before we talk about some of that, I want to kind of step back and ask a broader question. Because I feel like the book, you know, in some ways is also a reflection on the experiences and the work that you've done over the past number of years, writing about these topics, looking at the tech industry, looking at these influential figures who are shaping a lot about how society works right now. And so I wonder from your vantage point, how you've seen the tech industry evolve over the years and whether your thinking on it has changed over that period too. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I read the book for the audio book, I don't know if you've done the audio reading of your own books. The whole thing takes on a different quality for the writer because now you're saying it out loud. And when I read this book out loud compared to the others, I realized it was a stealth memoir, that this really was my 
journey through the cyber culture from, you know, what seemed like the beginnings to me anyway, in the late eighties, you know, right through to where we are now. And I would say it's less the story of my changing attitudes towards a thing that was happening, but the way the world shifted under my feet. I guess for me, it's a story of there was this tremendous, if unsettling or destabilizing potential for digital technology to really change the way we engage with one another, to foster a much more collective, creative potential. And I watched really over the years as that potential was surrendered to the needs of the traditional marketplace. I'm less amazed by how things have changed than by how steadfastly they've remained the same. So that instead of taking this almost, not to get too druggy, but instead of taking an almost psychedelic trip together as a society, we used digital technology more like steroids or speed in order to double down on extractive corporate capitalism. So, you know, the the original set and setting, to use Timothy Leary's words, the original set and setting for the digital trip was collective imagination and challenging authority and asking new questions and you know, and it was a world that, that a lot of us saw in those early days of hypertext and rave and interactive storytelling and even, you know, questioning identity and gender in fun, crazy, playful ways and how that was replaced by a set and setting of, you know, extraction, control, domination, you know, the good old ones that we've had the last 500 or so years. And then looking at where that took us. And I feel like it's the story of how we went from this good trip into a really bad trip of paranoia and apocalypse fantasies. And in some ways, the people who are most successful in the digital media environment are suffering the most with that horror show. Yeah, it's really reflected in the book and in your work as well, right? That horror show that we have developed into that we've arrived at, even though the narrative in the early part of this kind of transformation as the internet is emerging is so different, as you say, is so kind of focused on the opportunity and the liberation and, and what have you that is going to be offered by these technologies by moving in this direction. And it is interesting when, when you when you when you say it, you know, I, I was just thinking I had just looked at my first real book. It was called Siberia that I wrote in 1992 that was canceled in 93 because they thought the net would be over by the time it came out. You know, that one. And and I was like, and it's a very, um, it's not an optimistic, but it's a very open-minded appraisal of this new thing that was happening. You know, the Mondo 2000 era, reality hacker, are you serious? You know, very early Apple, gee whiz, wonder, West Coast thing. But at the very end of the book, I say, you know, there's this new magazine coming along called Wired that is sort of reframing this digital renaissance as an economic revolution. And I feel like there's a window of opportunity for us kind of peace, love, human nature, loving people to seize the opportunity of the net. But, you know, if we don't, there's a very alternative history that we may live. And I was trying not to be too scared, but I was like, huh, there's this thing on the horizon. There's an alternative road we may go down, which will be really scary. And I was already at that point saying, you know, what will it be like if we're using an internet where marketing could reconfigure itself in real time based on how we're behaving? And we'll each end up with our own feedback loop of personalized social control. That would be a dangerous place to go. You know, so I was already wondering that it could happen. Phew, it's a, it's a good thing we avoided that dystopian future. Yeah, thank God. I <laughs> warned everyone and we avoided it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, because when you look back at that moment now, and certainly you discussed this a bit in the book, what do you make of that kind of framing of the internet? Because as you discuss in the book, and as is probably familiar to a lot of the listeners of the podcast, a lot of those narratives around, you know, the potential transformative effect of the internet and of the digital environment and, and what have you is also seized on by those people who want to promote kind of the economic vision of the internet and, and what it could give to us as well. When you look back now on those narratives of the internet as kind of liberatory, as offering us these different experiences, do you think that they were 
naive in what they potentially offered or what they saw as being possible to, you know, through this technology? Was it always kind of set in stone that the way that we went was one where the market kind of took over the internet and vastly commercialized it just as though it takes over every other part of our society? Yeah, I mean, there were multiple forms of naivete. You know, the easy one was John Barlow came along and wrote the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. He was a Grateful Dead lyricist. He was cool with everybody. We didn't know he was Dick Cheney's roommate in college and campaign advisor. <laughs> yeah, I, I did not know that. When I read that in your book, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and it was like, oh, and when he came along and said, you know, governments of the world, get off our internet. We don't need you. This is our space. What we didn't realize was if you get rid of government, then you create free reign for corporations to come. You know, and government really had cast itself as the enemy. This was the moment there was something called Operation Sun Devil, where they had raided the homes of little 14-year-old hackers who are, you know, trying to break into AT&T to see how the systems work. They were not cyber espionage terrorists. They were curious children getting handcuffed and, you know, dragged into jail. And it was like, we were mad at them. We were mad at Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, who was doing a parental advisory and trying to shut down. Everyone thought that cyber would be used for child porn. And this was all bad. And babies are going to see naked people on the internet or, you know, God knows what they were really worried about at the time. But it was a lot of fear mongering or moral panic was going on. So it seemed like, yeah, government, get out, FBI. We don't need you. So that happened. But on a more complex level, and this is more to your work, what we knew was we were breaking the monopolistic control of Rupert Murdoch and William Randolph Hearst. The whole read-only mediascape that we were living in seemed like, okay, now we're going to move into a read-write mediascape where I can make the videos and do the stuff and make all that. It's going to be free of those repressive biases. And because we weren't really fluent in McLuhan, we didn't realize that, no, it's not just that they're free of those biases. It's going to be now subjected to a new set of biases. What are the biases and affordance of digital technology? And we better understand those lest we be run over by them. And without doing that analysis, we weren't able to see how this space would end up favoring the loudest troll, you know, that misbehavior in cyberspace would be rewarded vastly more than appropriate behavior. It was a different different place. And we didn't compensate for that. We didn't program for that. We programmed for engagement. Yeah, I feel like it makes a ton of sense, right? Like when you go back and read Barlow or some of the other writings in that time, the opposition to government is there, right? Like you can see it very clearly, but then there's so little mention of the corporation, right? And this other kind of form of power that exists in our society and how it would be able to swoop in if the government is not there, if there's no kind of regulatory framework, if we're not thinking about the potential consequences that come of just unleashing it and creating a whole new market opportunity that a bunch of companies can then kind of use in order to build a whole new load of businesses. Right. And not to cheer for authoritarianism on any level, but you look at the difference between the exported version of TikTok and the domestic version of TikTok in China, and because China has a very, let's use a nice word, strong government and ready government intervention, the TikTok that their children receive has educational material like pandas and all sorts of stuff. It's basically, it's, it's an educational channel using the addictiveness or some of the addictiveness of TikTok and the, the sensationalism of it to teach kids. And the number one profession that little kids say they want to go into when they grow up is to be an astronaut. You know, in America, where TikTok has no such controls and it's it's the least common denominator. It's even, you know, uh, Tristan Harris says uh, he's got a good one for this. He's really good. I, I don't know. I agree with him all the time about his kind of techno solutionism for upscaling humanity, but he is good with the phrase. And he says, you know, that <laughs> domestically Chinese TikTok is spinach. Internationally, it's opium. Right. <laughs> and, and that's true. That's why in America that you ask kids of the same age what they want to be when they grow up and they say an influencer. Like, oh my gosh, a social media influencer. That's, it doesn't matter what they're influencing about. Just influence, influence. Yeah. It, that also feels linked to, I feel like I read this somewhere and I can never like actually find 
the study that said it. So maybe it's something I made up and they just like justified to uh, myself. Good enough. But like in unequal societies, and I guess maybe like we could even say stagnating to some degree societies, right? Because one thing I think that we can recognize about whether it's the United States or, you know, the West more generally is that social mobility is really stagnating, right? The kind of promise of say an american dream or what have you that sure you work hard and you know things are going to get better in your life and you're going to improve generation on generation that has kind of evaporated as this inequality has gotten so much worse and then you see that reflected in these ideas about careers and what people want to achieve whereas as you say somewhere in china maybe astronaut and these sorts of ideas are what people are going toward what people think would be really good careers things that we might have seen in decades past in say the united states or canada and now everyone wants to be a sports player or a youtuber or an influencer or what have you because it seems like that is kind of your one shot at getting out of whatever situation you're in now, right? You can't really pursue the kind of career that is going to give you the growth or what have you in the past. It's the moonshot or it's nothing. Right. The main tools that people had for changing class, if you will, um, for class mobility, those are the things that are inflated more than anything else. Home prices, where you get into a so-called better neighborhood to send your kid to a good school so they can then get into college, or college itself, which went up 10 times more than, than the regular rate of inflation. And now doesn't even really serve that same function. Well, college is so much more, uh, you know, and I'm teaching in college, but parents and kids, they all come in. It's like, what job can I get when I'm done? What job? So the whole, maybe it was elitist, but the beauty of college was it was four years away from the job market to actually develop your whole instrument, you know, and now it's um, very few people look at it that way. Yeah. Job training, basically, you know, which is unfortunate. Right. They're externalizing the cost of worker training to us. Yeah, exactly. And we have, I think, traditionally been a bit better with, uh, you know, university tuition and stuff in Canada. But even here in Newfoundland, where I am, they shot it through the roof recently because the argument was that, oh, it's too cheap here because the rest of Canada has it more expensive. So we need to match them so that it looks comparable if it's not expensive then it looks like it's a cheap education and not worth as much and it's like what how that's so backwards right like there it makes go. no sense <laughs> it's commodity fetishism in in education yeah there you go yeah it, it's disappointing and i i want to get back to that early period you know before we get into what is going on now oh, i could stay i'll stay in the early period okay <laughs> <laughs> You also talked about like, you know, kind of the dot-com boom, right? That that kind of first when the internet is privatized, when this is taking off, all these companies are forming and there's this really kind of mad dash to, you know, be the big internet company, to be the next big thing. All of this money is rushing in. And then at the end of that period, we have the explosion, right? All of this wealth, so to speak, quote unquote, is destroyed because the boom goes bust. But you also talked about how this period was, you called it like a, a Ponzi scheme, basically, you know, all of this money was going in in search of returns. And the question was, will you be able to get out before everything goes bust? Can you talk to us a bit about that period and, and what you take from it? Yeah, well, it's funny. I remember all these business plans. It was like, see, when I was a kid, people would write screenplays and then try to get one. So you get like $500,000 for a screenplay and you move out to California and you're rich and get laid and get a pool and whatever. And <laughs> it was like, and people who had nothing to do with movies would try to write the screenplay. You buy the Sid Feld book. It was this one on how to write screenplays. And then you just try to bang one out if you have a good enough idea and you follow the structure. So with in the dot-com boom era, like 96, 7, 8, 9, what people would do is like come up with a high concept, like a digital bike lock. And then you write <laughs> this business plan where you say, okay, there's 500 million bicycles in America times $12, which is the margin that we get on each one of these digital bike locks equals $2.7 billion. You know, and that was basically the way it went. Or you'd be generally say, well, if we only sell, even if we only sold to 20% of American bicycles, we would still make, you know, $3 billion. So they would write those out and generate money. It was a really a pure pyramid scheme that an angel would come in and support that. And then they'd go up to a series A for the next level investors and a series B. And you try to get it all the way up to your IPO where you're selling to the public. And at that point, the angels and the series A people get out 
and leave everybody else on the pyramid holding the bag until the thing dies. And it just kept happening and happening. Even companies that were delivering some value, their business plans would be like people who stay in their apartments or their homes by remortgaging and remortgaging at better valuations. That keeps working as long as the price of your house is going up. So you can get a new mortgage at a better valuation. But the minute it stops going up, you die. You die suddenly. You have to leave. And what I was watching was that when was this going to happen to all these companies? Because everybody, I think, maybe they didn't. I knew and some of my friends knew, but everybody else thought we were in a new paradigm that because of digital, it would be all different. And that was even new paradigm was Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Federal Reserve, said we're in a new (laughs) paradigm. We see how that went. Yeah. And what the turning point for me was when, um, and I wrote about it in the book, was when the New York Times asked me to write the op-ed about the AOL Time Warner merger. And me, I'm one of us, right? I'm not a business guy. I've never written a business piece <laughs> in my life. It's like, wait a minute. I compare the hypertext adventure to a ayahuasca trip versus an acid trip. And here's why. You know? <laughs> like, I'm a different, you know, I mean, I was writing about internet culture and all, but not that. And they're like, no, no, you're the guy to write this because this is the new synergy of old media, new media. You'll be able to explain it. You're the new McLuhan. You'll tell us what it is. So I go, okay, if I'm the new McLuhan, I'm going to look at this through the lens of a media theorist. So what is this currency that they're playing with? And it's like, oh, so Steve Case, the owner of AOL, is taking his in-game money right? It's like video game money. And he's using it to buy an old media, real company like Time Warner that has a movie studio and cable. They own Roadrunner Cable. They have amusement parks. They have all this actual stuff. So, right, he's cashing in his chips, his poker chips to get this next level of money that's tied to the real world. And that must mean his subscriber base has probably peaked, you know, and he's, that's why he ran to Goldman and Salmon Smith Barney and whoever to do an IPO or to buy this new company. And it's going to crash and burn, obviously, because the weight of this funny money into that fake, into that real money is going to dilute everything. I don't know how this is going to even last. They call me up that afternoon from the op-ed page and they say, we can't print this. We talk to the people in the business section. They say, you are insane, that this is insane. <laughs> this is paranoid conspiracy theory nuttiness. He couldn't buy it. He's he's growing. That's why he's buying, because he's growing. This is the new synergy of old media, new media, new paradigm, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, if that's what the business people say, let them write the op-ed. You know, So they wrote the op-ed. I published mine in The Guardian. And of course, just a few months later, you know, they're taking the drinking fountains, the water coolers out of the Time Warner building to try to save money. The whole thing crashes and burns. You know, Ted Turner says it was the worst thing that happened to America since the Vietnam War and maybe worse. You know, but he was, <laughs> the, he was the guy who ran CNN. But it was the beginning of the dot-com crash. That was that moment that people went, oh, I get it. This isn't real. This isn't real money. I thought, yay, we fought off the infection, you know, the bacterial infection of corporatism. And now we're going to do, and I was the one who dubbed it actually, 95. I said, this is going to prove itself a social medium, what the internet is. And I thought, this is it. And when I saw, even though they were silly, the beginnings of Friendster and MySpace and Blogger, it's like, oh, here we go. These are not dot coms. This is not people buying stuff through the internet. It is people sharing ideas, and even monetizing them in some cases, but with the medium. And it's like, like, this is it. It's becoming social again. And of course, the business came back and said, okay, we're going to invest again. But now, instead of just doing your crazy dot-com thing, once we give you money, we're going to ask you to pivot towards something that actually makes some money. And they even did it to companies that were like Google that was making money. They said, but how are you going to make $100 billion instead of $10 billion? And exactly. that was, of it course, be way more. And always more. Always more because they're chasing exponential growth, which is not real. Exponential growth does not exist in nature except in cancer and it kills its host. Yeah. And and there's been such a mistake, I feel like, especially in recent years, as increasingly they've tried to, you know, apply that exponential thinking to the real world, right? To things like cars and things like Ubers and houses and, and anything else. But there are a few things I want to pick up on what you just said, because I think there's so much fascinating in it, in looking back at that period and even thinking about it in terms of, you know, what has gone on in the past decade or so. Like, you know, when you're talking about the dot-com boom and these angel investors, these VCs buying in and then going to the various rounds to get more money and then cashing out at the IPO. Like the thing that I immediately think of is a company like Uber, right? It's never made any money. The investors bought in early on. They got more investors to come in on it. 
And then they cashed out at the IPO and put the company onto the retail investors of the other people who buy in at that period. But they've made their money, even though Uber has never been profitable. Like, how do you compare what was going on in that kind of dot com boom period to what we've seen in kind of the the post 2008 cheap money, like all of that, what was going on in that period? The main difference is more of the early investors now understand to get out. You know, in the dot-com boom bust period, a lot of wealthy people lost a lot of money. You know, they lost 80, 90% of their portfolio in that crash because, and then they blame people like me for saying the internet was great. You know, it's like, no, I said the internet was great. Not that these dot-com companies are great. There's a really big (laughs) difference. Oh no, Rushkoff, you've soured on the dot-com. It's like, no, I was screaming about the dot-com in 95 saying, don't do this thing. (laughs) You know, I I didn't, I honestly, I didn't think Amazon was going to make money. I was like, what, why would I do that instead of going to the bookstore and supporting my local shop? It's like... (laughs) I remember writing a piece saying, we just lived through a Barnes and Noble's decimation of the local book industry. Do you think we're really going to go a step further? And <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe it's because of what Barnes and Nobles and Borders and all did to the local bookshops that made it easier. They kind of destroyed the local. So then it's like, what's worse about this company than that one? Well, it's like Walmart too, right? It To some degree, there was even like, Walmart sucks. Walmart is terrible. Walmart's destroying our communities. But now Amazon is coming and eating Walmart's lunch. Do we really want to lose Walmart too if that's all that we have left? Right, right. And now Uber is a particular case. Like I think Airbnb actually makes money, right? Uber loses money. And even though their impact on society and local economies is pretty similar, I guess because Uber thought like a lot of these companies, like Facebook does, they think that their big payday is in the next thing that they do. Like Uber probably believes that it's going to be running the national network of autonomous vehicles or something. That they'll, you know, partner with Tesla or something and create a new drones of <laughs> automobiles. And I saw they had they did a architectural competition for spaceports or 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 yeah. heliports, right? For for flying Uber cars and the where the rich are in this layer above the city and the poor down on the ground, you know, fighting each other like in some John Carpenter movie. <laughs> you know, but, like, but in the PR, it's actually for everyone, right? Everyone gets to, to take the helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we do. I really don't. With each level of new thing, I'm less invited to participate. <laughs> <laughs> My wealth has stayed the same. I used to be able to afford an Uber. No, I mean, I could afford an Uber, luckily. It is a little different. And it's also because I think that the amount of financialization around these things is greater so that it's easier for, say, like a Jason Calacanis bought in Uber early and got really rich, like $100 million rich off that. And yes, and the company didn't make money. I think it would have been harder to do that before people learned how to game the system. It's like, oh, wait a minute. When we buy this, they're going to put a two-year lock on us being able to sell our stock. Well, let's change that to 90 days. And let's, how do we obfuscate this and do that in 83B? And, you know, they've got all of these little hacks that they've developed so they could do the same Ponzi, but kind of delay the crash long enough to get out. It's so fascinating, right? Because it does feel like, you know, what you were describing with a lot of the dot-com stuff was also a lot of what we saw in kind of the post-2008 period, where you have all this cheap money, where cash is everywhere, where, again, there's these companies that are building the Uber for X, and they have an app for everything. And like, you know, in many cases, that's not really socially useful. It's just what can we dream up that someone else hasn't done before, and then can try to raise a bunch of money from a, a bunch of venture capitalists, even if it crashes and burns in six months or whatever. At least we got that kind of payday for now, and then we can move on to the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, it's funny. I had a bunch of different like companies or groups and whatever wanted me to join them on kind of conferences and panels and things about Web3. I always say when they email, I say, I don't know if Web3 is really a thing. It just seems to be this basket of ill-defined or undefined innovations, VR and AR and crypto and blockchain and NFTs and fantasy role-playing and media and uh, and into the next whatever, this sort of a meta literally meta, but a meta innovation, right? It's some kind of meta innovation for the meta crisis and the meta economy. And when I challenge it, what more than one person has said, yeah, but there's so much money invested in it that it has to happen, that it can't not happen. 
And I'm like, why, why can't it not? I feel like it cannot happen. Even, <laughs> even with all that money, right? I mean, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like, look at how, look at how much it has imploded, you know, since the peak in what, when was it? November 2021, I guess about a year or so ago. Web3 for a little while was going to happen. It was the next big thing. And now, like, you know, we see the NFT market has crashed. We see these completely empty NFT conferences where a year ago they would have been like filled with people. And now we see Mark Zuckerberg burning, you know, his company to the ground in pursuit of this metaverse that no one really seems to want. I know it's like I was really into what we called meta theater when I was in college, you know, the play within the play, because that moment when you see the play within the play and then the audience thinks, am I in a play and someone's seeing me? You know, there's that moment of looking over your shoulder, that paranoid, beautiful play within a play within a play within a play. And you go meta, 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 meta. But when I would talk to my friends in the philosophy department, they would say, yeah, but there's some philosophical rule. I don't know what they call it, that if your philosophy is based on an infinite recursion or something, it's like there's a name for it in philosophy, then you know, okay, you're kind of going down the wrong path. If your proof of God is that God could go meta on us, well, then what goes meta on God and what goes meta on that and meta on that? It's like, okay, you're stuck in a kind of a metaphysical loop. And I think that we recognize that intuitively. So everyone understood web two. It's like, okay, you can have a dot com or you could have the site that aggregates the dot coms. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be American Airlines buying planes and buying fuel and having people and crashing and all this stuff? Or do you want to be the website that aggregates American Airlines and United Airlines gets 10 or 15% of every ticket and you got no planes, no gas, nothing. You went meta, right? Or go meta on that maybe and then have a site that aggregates the prices from all the meta sites and does that. So you could do that one or two times. But then I think when we went from web two to web three, I think a lot of people went, wait a minute, does this just keep happening? So if I could go web three on web two, then is someone else going to just go web four on web three? And if they can, I'm going to be the sucker again. So fuck that. Maybe the place to go is not up to web three, but down to web one or reality 1.0, where the actual scarce resources exist. The actual rare earth metals, the actual human beings, the actual water. It's like, what do you want to be in web three or water? Yeah. Take the water, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's also like, do I want another level of commercialization when the degree to which the web is commercialized already is already so shitty and terrible? Okay. So I, I do want to get to the topic of the book. I have one more thing I want to pick up on what you said. I'm fascinated, you know, obviously, as you wrote about in the book, and as you were just describing, you wrote this op-ed about the Time Warner AOL merger, you know, before it all imploded. And we're also in this moment where there's a lot of kind of interaction between the kind of more traditional entertainment companies, you know, the Warners, the Discoveries, all of these, and the tech companies, right, as they've moved into this increasingly with streaming and, and things like that. And it seemed like they were you know, revolutionizing the video, film, television sectors with this streaming business model that Netflix really pioneered. And a lot of them kind of jumped onto and a lot of the big entertainment companies felt that they had to replicate, you know, force them to consolidate more because they had to compete with these highly capitalized tech firms. And it does feel like after the hype of that for the past decade, it does feel like the wheels are kind of coming off of that kind of vision for entertainment right now, right? With the trouble that Netflix has had with the whole mess with Warner and Discovery now. Obviously, we were talking about what happened before when the tech companies started to move into the entertainment space by AOL buying Time Warner and how that was a disaster. Like, what do you make of what is going on now and the effect that they have had in transforming the film and television industries and, you know, what that has kind of turned into? Well, I mean, you're right that these companies had massive power, the new companies. And that's because their capital structures were one or even two orders of magnitude greater than the companies that they were competing with. Like you got, so you get like an MGM or a Time Warner and like these little quaint property owning 
reality-based companies that have been around a long time and have P&Es that are related to the last 50 years of earnings that we know about. Sweet little Fox movies or whatever. Then you've got these digital companies that are just Saudi sovereign wealth fund massive extra billions from oil and molybdenum mining. It's like cash looking. (laughs) You're looking for, for what? You know what I mean? So the amount of content that they could make. It's like Warner has its schedule of, oh, we'll do like six movies this year and two TV shows. And, you know, oh, we're really going, you know, maybe we'll have a Hunger Games and really do well. And then it's like, okay, so we will network. We're going to do 51 shows a year so that we can release one new major series a week on every week, except, you know, Yom Kippur, right? Or whatever. And each one of them having so much, or Disney having so much, it was a bit like Bannon, just like flood the zone, right? So they flooded the zone with all of this media. It was great for people who wanted to make media. It was really hard for people to watch. I mean, when I was a kid, there were three main channels, maybe four if you included Fox as they arose with with the Simpsons. But most kids I knew knew pretty much every TV show what channel it was on and what day of the week. There was Thursday nights, had MASH and this, and that certain comedies, there was must-see TV, there was this. But you knew the whole thing. Even if you didn't watch Everybody Loves Raymond, you knew what it was and where it was. Where now there are like six-season, hundred, multi-hundred million dollar mammoth series about like barbarians and medici and romans it's like i've never even heard of and it's like (laughs) someone says oh go see the medici thing and i go look and it's like there's like nine different major multi-million dollar series on that family or the borgias or whatever they were called they've got like six series it's like oh there's the jeremy irons one and this one and that one so this massive amount of content and they were all doing it until they could be you know the last man standing so i would argue it was successful, just like the automobile industry had a hundred companies until it was the three majors, you know, and now there's going to be a hundred of these until the three last ones stand. People are not, I'm not able to afford every single streaming network I'd like between, you know, Hulu and Paramount and Peacock and this and that and the other. So I'm just missing. I missed the last three Star Trek series. And I'm someone who never would have missed, even if it was bad, you know, I made it through everything, you know, through Deep Space Nine, Voyager, all of them. I made it through them. It's not even, I don't even have time to watch them if I wanted to. Yeah. So the consolidation is necessary. There's not enough eyeball hours to do it. So it was going to happen. But I would argue they succeeded. I mean, TV has been transformed into this remote control operated menus of stuff. It's a, it's a whole different thing. Streaming worked. It just can't work for so many companies at the same time. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. They absolutely transformed it. I I think it was just, you know, so many companies trying to compete for so much and then having to spend to make so much content and to consolidate in order to to compete and how that consolidation is going to be pushed even further. But also the discussions of, you know, what that means for the people who work on the shows. You know, it was good for some actors and screenwriters and things like that who are in high demand. But then it also had some issues for some of the people who work on the sets and how the rates were different, what it means for residuals. It's a real disruption. And, you know, obviously there are discussions now as to whether the finances of streaming make as much sense as the way it worked before, because, you know, you make the content, it drops in the library and then it stays there and never goes anywhere else. Right. No. And it will flip again. I mean, that's where Cory Doctorow's new book on choke point capitalism is interesting for people to read. Like, look at how these big, massive uh, interactive media companies or internet era media companies went in wisely creating choke points so that no one else can get value from the thing except, you know, the studio or the streamer or whoever it is that's in charge. All of those things that they do open up the possibility of a people's bottom up different sort of media. Look at the alternatives to, to YouTube that have different profit models. Look at even a service like Vimeo. You know, if you had proper publicity, you could put a movie on Vimeo in 4K. They have admissions. They'll run the money for you. So the keys to an independent media space are in our hands now. It's just a matter of whether we can uh, kind of organize ourselves to create a different method of discoverability. 
And that's the real challenge, right? Because then you need to face up against the power of these major companies that exist there, the people who head them, and all this sort of stuff. And I, I want to use that to transition into the hook of the book, right? Because you start by talking about going to an exclusive conference where you meet these people who are really concerned about the quote-unquote event, right? And how they are going to survive it. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about what this event is, what is motivating these people. And in the book, you talk about the mindset, right? How these people are thinking. And I think that is really key. So can you outline that for us? I still don't really know what the event I went to was exactly. I was under the impression that it was the highest net worth investors of a particular hedge fund family. You know, so that they were there and that they brought in a bunch of speakers to talk about the future of various things. You know, I thought I was going to be brought out to speak, and instead they brought these five guys into my green room, and they just sat down at the table. I thought it was like a pre-talk thing that they were doing. I was pretty much going to say, look, Greg, right before I give a talk, I like to have a few minutes alone. And, then, and it was like, oh, no, this is it. This is your event. It's happening right now. So, I mean, what I did learn was there were lots of different kinds of professionals at this thing, not just speakers, but like a golf coach and a chef and an astronaut. So it's possible that each of us was a form of entertainment. And I also considered the possibility that the reason they didn't bring me out to do my talk in whatever the auditorium speaker space was, was that maybe only five people showed up for my event. Right. So these are, I don't know if any of this is true or not. This is just like afterthought, like in the years I've had to think about this, that what if there seems to be some possibility that, oh, they were going to bring me, I wasn't deluded, right? This was a green room. They were going to bring me out and then maybe brought these guys in instead, except there was already a table in there with chairs around it. So why would that be in the green room if that, so I don't know, but then they're talking to me, you know, and they didn't let me do my talk and they were doing what wealthy guys usually do with me, which is a really dumb thing to do with me, which is ask me binary questions about where they should place their bets. Because while I am almost always correct about where things are going, I am almost always incorrect about where to place your bet, right? I would have said CompuServe, not AOL. I would have said Betamax, not VHS, right? I would have said, you know, Ethereum, not Bitcoin, although maybe that one will prove to be true. But they were peppering me with those questions. It was the old, you know, do we, should I bet on Ethereum or Bitcoin or virtual reality or augmented reality or this or that? And then finally, it was Alaska or New Zealand. So we spent this hour talking about these things, just about their bunkers after that question came out. And again, I have to wonder, did they invite me there to water test their bunker strategies? Or did they wander into a conversation that it turns out all five of these guys were actually concerned about? And one of them popped the cork on that conversation. So now it was, a, oh, yeah, I've been worrying about my Navy SEALs. And I'm worrying about this. And I'm worrying about that. And, and what I realized was their concern. One of them said that their actuaries had decided there was a 20% likelihood of a cataclysmic event by the end of their lifetimes. So that's why they were investing 20% of their money in plan Bs, right? <laughs> in, in, in these bunker scenarios. And they weren't all bunkers. I mean, one of them was like a seasteader. You know, they had different sorts of things they were thinking about, or at least saying that they were thinking about in front of each other. Because there was also the feeling like this is some kind of a weird little kind of poker game that they're playing with each other, like bluffing on who has what, you know? So what was really going on? There was some point I had brought up, something about their water supply, some real basic point about their water supply being able, oh no, there's swimming pools. Like one of them was talking about that he was getting this bunker thing with an indoor swimming pool and natural light somehow. And I was like, you know, dude, my neighbor's got a swimming pool and there's always a truck in front of that house. Like it's always, someone's bringing a new filter and a new water thing, a new heater. It's like, where are you going to get your pool supplies when you're down there. It's like, what are you going to 3D print them? And the guy opens one of those little moleskin books and I see him write down, you know, indoor swimming pool supplies, question mark. It's if like, okay, so you're really not thinking about this at all. You're just like losers. But what I realized was what we were looking at was a bigger guilt paranoia where they have always been trying to build a car that could go fast enough to escape from its own exhaust, that they've been living with trying to escape externalities. And back in the days when it was 
you know, people of color in faraway places and their resources that you were taking and their children that you were enslaving, it wasn't quite as bad as when it was right in your own country. When your own Northern California indigenous made log cabin wigwam is now being singed with <laughs> forest fires <laughs> from your own deforestation practices. What do you think's going to happen? You know, now they're starting to worry. You know, when they see the storming of the Capitol got a lot of them scared. It's like, uh-oh, what power have we unleashed? You know, it's one thing to not let my own kid use any of the stuff, and they don't. Their kids are going to Rudolf Steiner schools and Waldorf academies and living on organic goat milk and whatever up in the up in Nevada somewhere, while they're giving us, just like the Chinese, they're giving us all the same bad stuff the Chinese would give us. But who are they living amongst then? So that's really their real fear is, wait a minute, I've externalized so much that now I'm neck deep in the in my own externalized harm. I've got to get away from this somehow. So they fantasize, you know, Blue Origin, getting off the planet. Oh, the 8 billion people alive today, according to long-termism. They're just the larval stage in humanity's inevitable ascent to the heavens when the 40 trillion of us spread out through the solar system will matter a lot more than the 8 billion larvae squirming around today. <laughs> it's it's so distressing, right? Well, it's laughable when you realize who they are and how silly they are. Like the guy, there's a great story in there about a, a, a guy who's really afraid of AI. One of the guys who started one of the main social networks. It was a, at a foo camp, the Friends of O'Reilly. So we're not allowed to say the names of people who say stuff. But the guy's asking me, aren't you scared? You've been posting such negative things about AI on Medium and on Twitter. Aren't you scared that when the AIs are in charge, they're going to rub you out. And I was like, well, why should I be? And he goes, well, I don't write anything at all about AI. I've been, since you know 1997, I've meticulously scrubbed anything. Uh, there's not one comment. And I said, well, if you think these AIs are going to be so smart with all their machine learning, aren't they going to be able to infer from your posting pattern how you actually feel about them? And the guy goes, oh, shit. You know, like he's never even thought of that. And these are the smart guys. These are the guys smarter than us, right? The geniuses who program this shit. Yeah, it, it it's it's so true, right? And it's frustrating to see how influential they are, how much harm they're causing in society, and how the response that they have is how can I try to protect myself from the consequences of my actions rather than saying, hey, these actions are like, destroying society. Maybe I should be doing something a little bit different. Maybe I should be trying to change that. And not in the way that, you know, you might hear from some of these effective altruists, Sam Bankman-Fried, people like that. Okay, I'm doing the terrible thing, but I'll take some of that money and I'll put it into good causes. So that's ethical. It makes, you know, building crypto Ponzi schemes and working for oil companies and stuff like that ethical, right? Because I'm doing that. I'm doing more good. It's, it's in the math. It's in the math. You're doing... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As long as I can calculate it out and make it look look right on the on the sheet, right? <laughs> on the balance yeah. sheet. It, it's it's oh, so frustrating. That always works. That always works. Yeah. There's the other kind though, who don't just want to escape it or do some correction, but feel like they have the exclusive vision of how to fix the whole thing. The guys that have such hubris and such. We are as gods and may as well get good at it, self-confidence, that they, you know, drop some acid or go to Burning Man and do some ayahuasca and come back thinking that they've got the total solution for all of humanity. And you look, say, at a teal who believes he has that in, you know, techno monarchy or some of the guys with their great reset and game B who think they have it in their stack of software. But I feel like that's reaching an end point too. Like right now, we are watching Elon Musk have a nervous breakdown in real time on Twitter and bring an entire community into that. And it's like, people are asking what I can compare what Musk is going through to. And like the closest thing is Charlie Sheen. If you remember when he did that tiger yeah, thing. <laughs> and he kind of, there's this like standing wave of culture and then someone decides to jump into it. So like Charlie Sheen was the first and he got like thrashed around and huge and then kind of spit out. Then like the next one to do it was kind of Donald Trump jumped in there, right? In this big way. It's not him. It's the culture. People keep blaming him. It's not. He's the fucking golem. He's the golem being, <laughs> being inhabited by this cultural spirit. And now I think that the greatest threat to Donald Trump is Elon Musk. 
Because if Elon Musk takes on the sort of antichrist-like quality that he is the one being martyred by civilization, then Trump loses that. You know, whoever is the troll in chief wins. I would much rather Elon play that role, you know, non-politically than Trump in in the civic sector. Yeah, it makes total sense. I, I guess the the risk there, I guess, is, you know, he's someone who very much holds this third view, as you're talking about, very much his visions are what is going to save us, whether it is from climate change or from extinction or what have you. You know, there's a whole other load of things that he thinks he's saving us from, defender of free speech now. But along with that, he not only brings along a particular politics of grievance, it seems like a particular politics that nobody should stand in his way. He should not have to pay taxes. He should not have to pay attention to regulations. He should be allowed to, not only allowed to, but enabled to undertake and roll out his vision of what this society should be and how it's going to solve our problems and, and fix everything and, and what have you. And that seems particularly concerning because, and you know, this is something that you write about in the book, it doesn't really contain the real solutions to the problems that we face and in many ways probably even exacerbates them, right? Because it puts our focus on these moonshots, on these things that he is excited about, whereas, you know, the real solutions to these problems, often solutions that don't involve, you know, holding out hope for some new technology that's going to save us from whatever it is we're doing to ourselves is really trending us in the wrong direction. Yeah. You know, it, no, it's night, it's nightmarish. It's nightmarish. So then what the question becomes, what do we do about that? And I think all we can do about that is attempt to achieve coherence ourselves. You know, I, I'm, less and less involved in the Twitter wars. This It's unwinnable. That space is unwinnable. It's just like, you know, in the book, I have this argument with Richard Dawkins, where he wants me to provide evidence of a non-evidence-based reality. It's like, wait a minute, that's not going to work. So it's like, how can I troll us toward an anti-troll society? You, know, you can't. It's the wrong tool for the job. I, I wonder, you know, as we start to wrap up a conversation that I've really enjoyed. And obviously, I thank you for coming on the show. I, I wonder, you know, what you feel your big takeaway is with this book, right? What are you trying to get people to recognize or understand about the tech industry and the way that, you know, the, this industry and, and the particular people who are powerful in this industry are shaping the world in a particular way? You know, what should we take away from this? And what does it kind of force us to do or to think about as we consider how we really try to address these problems and think about a better future. I mean, I guess the emotional takeaway for me is that these people, these men who once showered the world with madly optimistic business plans for how technology might benefit human society have reduced technological progress to a video game that one of them wins by finding the escape hatch. You know, and that's, and I want, I want the effect of that to be humor, to be a black comedy that these dudes that we think are so great are children, basically plucked from college as freshmen who didn't even have the myelin sheaths formed around their frontal lobes and transfer parental authority onto a Peter Thiel and never took ethics or philosophy or economics. And now you've a kid like Mark Zuckerberg still wants to be Augustus Caesar. That's who he models himself and his haircut and everything after. And it's like, on the one hand, we should be thankful it's Augustus and not Caligula, but he's still one of the richest men in the world modeling himself after a Roman dictator. So that's the number one. And I guess the second thing is for us to look at in terms of technology and ask, what are we solving for? Are we solving for the blockchain? Are we solving for the exponential growth of the economy, or are we solving for human society? So when you look at the homeless people in Palo Alto, say, the tent villages in one of the wealthiest cities in the world, you think, what kind of problem is this? Is this a city problem or is this a human problem? If it's a city problem, you get them to move along and then it's done. They're gone. They're somewhere else. They're over in Redwood City. If it's a people problem, then you look towards solving something in a very, and solving is even a tricky word to use, but you look toward addressing this 
in a very different way. And I think that's sort of what I'm asking people to do, that if they can see these guys and their dreams, not as the big things shaping society, but as bad trips spawned at Burning Man, and they're small enough to laugh at, then we can start to see our own capacity to disengage from their rule sets, from their video games, as entirely within our control. That yes, we can buy less stuff. You can buy one lawnmower rather than getting a minimum viable product drill, as Cory Doctorow says, in order to make one hole in your wall, go and borrow one from your neighbor, a nice metal drill, a real drill that the whole block shares. And the reason not to do that is people will go, well, what about the drill company? What about the guy who's going to lose his job at the drill company? Because you're not buying enough drills. Since when are human beings here to serve the economy? The economy is supposed to be here to serve us. If it turns out that we don't need to do as much work, that should be a good thing, not a bad thing. So we should be feel free to engineer and to reverse engineer our economy around human needs rather than other ones. And all sorts of different possibilities emerge. But the prerequisite to that is not seeing these guys who call themselves gods, not seeing them as gods, and not letting them recode our reality to suit their aims, because their aims don't involve us. Their aims involve escaping us and leaving us behind in a polluted morass of horror. Yeah, uh, I obviously completely agree. It feels like, you know, there's been this idea of technology, of the tech industry, of the way that tech can, not to repeat the name of the podcast, but can save us really, certainly since the 90s. But even, you know, as you're as you're saying, you know, we are gods going back to the 60s and the whole Earth catalog, this particular ideology that has shaped this period. And it really does feel that after all of this time of it really shaping how we respond to these things, really informing a lot of how we approach these problems, that there does feel like there's a more critical turn toward it, a, a questioning of it that maybe wasn't there before, or at least didn't have this kind of energy that it has in this moment to really say, you know what, we've tried this before. We've been trying this for decades. It's not solving the problems. In many cases, it's making things worse. And it's really time to rethink that at a more fundamental level and consider how we improve this society and how we change the way that we think about how we improve society so that we can actually do that in the years to come. Yeah. And the, I mean, it's interesting though, the two loudest voices in this reconsideration of technology moment are on the one hand, you've got, you know, Bannon and the fascists who are saying, you know, and I get it, you know, return to blood and soil, you know, and these technocrats are trying to take over and program our brains and put silicon chips in our, you know, COVID vaccines and nanobots and, you know, and the energy under it is right, but the where it's going is really the excuse for hate and violence is, is uh, doesn't really work there. And it's interesting how he's able basically to leverage the Gamergate kids against technology is genius, right? He's a wizard. It's a little scary. And then the other main allies we have are whatever they call themselves, you know, humane technologists who are willing to question everything about this stuff except the underlying operating system of, of capitalism. So they stay invested in these companies and they're looking for solutions that both solve for capitalism and solve for humans. And I'm sorry, but capitalism is intrinsically anti-human. You can't energize it. You might be able to work with it as a tool, but you can't see it as the underlying operating system for society because technology amplifies it. It revs it up too much beyond our ability to control it. That's where all the meta comes from. The original meta really is derivatives, derivatives on derivatives on derivatives. It's a way to invest, to leverage the money so that money is worth a thousand or a million or a trillion times what was actually earned. When you leverage things that much, it's what allows bits to overcome atoms because there's a zillion more bits than there are atoms. And no, it's not that they're going to expand out through the universe in a trillion simulations that matter as much as our world. They're not real. They're symbol systems. They're MP3s to music, right? They're not real. Yeah. 
I think it's a really important point that we need to recognize, right? That this way of thinking about the world is not how we're going to solve these fundamental problems. And we need to really question that at a fundamental level if we ever hope to respond to serious issues like climate change or inequality or or anything else that exists out there. Douglas, it's been fantastic to speak with you. The book is great, and I highly recommend everyone go pick it up. Thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for taking the time. And and I do intend to get on a little, maybe electric bicycle or something and make it up to see you. I want to breathe the air and while it's still there. <laughs> Next time I'm in New York, we'll have to hang out. Okie doke, that too. Douglas Rushkoff is the author of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, and the host of the Team Human podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at at Rushkoff. You can follow me at at Paris Marks. You can follow the show at at Tech Won't Save Us. Tech Won't Save Us is produced by Eric Wickham and is part of the Harbinger Media Network. If you want to support the work that goes into making the show every week, you can go to patreon.com slash techwontsaveus and become a supporter. Thanks for listening.